In the beginning, there was darkness. Then, there was Paul Brown. Paul Brown transformed the game. Hello, Paul Brown here. Welcome to the first ever International Browns Podcast. Good morning, Cleveland. I'm not here with my co-host, but I'm here with a walk-in encyclopedia of Brown's history, knowledge. It is Tom Blaha. Did I say that correct, Tom? Yes. Mm-hmm. Excellent, Tom. And you're in Carolina at the moment, yes? Yes, I am. Greenville, South Carolina. Home of a Browns backers club. Oh, excellent. And uh, we're just going to... Um, do a bit ad hoc histories of the 1960s of the Browns. You can educate me. Tell me your stories. It's going to be awesome. Okay. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking through the, um, the 60s. It looks like that um, uh, 60, 60, we came second. 61, we came third. 62, we came third. 63, we came second. 1964, which we're going to talk about. We won the championship against the Colts. We beat them 27-0. Yes. Uh, and then... Um, in 1965, we lost uh, against the Packers, 12-23. 1966, we came second. 1967, we came first, but we lost to the Cowboys. 1968, we beat the Cowboys, and but we lost to the Colts, if I'm correct. No. Uh, and then 1969, we won the championship, the Cowboys, and we lost the NFL championship uh, to the Vikings. So, um, where, where would you like to start, Tom? Well, I'll start a little bit before the, uh, the, the 60s proper. My, my very first Browns game that I went to was in 1957. I was 10 years old, and that was Jim Brown's rookie season. So, I always like to say that I, my rookie year as a Browns fan was Jim Brown's rookie year as a player, and he was just amazing. I mean, I, he, he is my all-time favorite Cleveland player in any sport and that includes LeBron James and Bob Feller and you know I'm into all the Cleveland sports but Jim Brown was just amazing when you look at his career uh you know people talk about Walter Payton and guys that came along later uh Emmett Smith and Barry Sanders and they look at lifetime yards gained and lifetime touchdowns I think you got to remember Jim Jim Brown played nine seasons and they were 12 game seasons back then they weren't 16 game seasons so the way to judge that is to look at yards per carry Every time he carried the ball, his average was 5.8. There's nobody even near that. So he's the all-time greatest. That was my first memory. Um, I, that was, I was 10. My parents weren't really into football. Uh, they were more baseball people. My dad was a hunting and fishing guy. So I didn't really get to go to that many more games in the 50s. I watched them all on TV, and my loyalty got cemented. And in the early 60s, I started going to games with my mates. We would drive down uh, on the bus and, and go to games. And, of course, Jim Brown by that time was a, a premier player in the league. And uh, in 1958, the Browns picked up a guy called Bobby Mitchell and drafted yep. him out of the University of Illinois. And Jim Brown and Bobby Mitchell were a one-two punch. Uh, both of them could run the ball up the middle, run the ball around the corner, or go in for the short pass or the long pass. And the two of them were a tremendous one-two punch, um, Jim Brown and Bobby Mitchell. Could, um, could Bobby have been a better career if Jim Brown wasn't around? Um, I, 
that's hard to say. I mean, they complemented each other so well. It was almost like a Mr. Inside, Mr. Outside sort of thing. And arguably, they would have been better if they'd hung on to Bobby Mitchell. What happened was uh, Jim Brown's alma mater, of course, was Syracuse University. And there was a young man who was a superstar at Syracuse University at the time called Ernie Davis. And the Browns traded Bobby Mitchell to the Washington Redskins for the draft rights to Ernie Davis, who was going to be the second Jim Brown. He wore Jim Brown's number at Syracuse and everything. But that summer, before he could report to the Browns training camp, he was diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, I think there was a film about it. You may have uh, seen it. It was very sad. He was diagnosed with leukemia, but obviously the, they weren't going to avoid the trade, and Paul Brown wasn't going to come back and ask for a refund. And oddly enough, Bobby Mitchell continued to star for the Redskins. And at that time, the Redskins were the last all-white team in the National Football League. Bobby Mitchell became the first African-American to play for the Redskins. Uh, and that was at a time before the Civil Rights Act. Uh, and the Washington Redskins were the farthest south a team in the NFL. There wasn't any team in Atlanta or Dallas or anywhere then. So the, Red Wing, the Redskins had a radio network all over the south, and they wanted to stay white for a lot of reasons. Bobby Mitchell was the first uh, black player to come to the Redskins when the Browns traded him for Ernie Davis. But anyway, um, there was a sort of an interregnum there in terms of somebody being a number two to Jim Brown. There was a guy called uh, uh, Ernie Green that filled it for a while. But then uh, in 62, I believe they picked up Leroy Kelly uh, to be the, uh, the the counterpoint to uh, to Jim Brown. And he became a Hall of Famer in his own right. So uh, those were some good teams there with Jim Brown and Leroy Kelly as the one-two punch in the backfield. Frank Ryan, uh, as we mentioned, they picked him up as a as a quarterback. He'd been a backup, a reserve quarterback uh, for the L.A. Rams, and the Browns picked him up, and he became a starter uh, right away and uh, obviously led to them to championship in 64. He was also an intellectual. They called him, not jokingly, Dr. Frank Ryan, and his doctorate was in physics or higher math or something along that order. So uh, that was uh, that was pretty significant as well. Uh, and, that, and, that, and that 1964 game, where were you? Were you uh... – in the stadium, or were you watching it? Or well, that's that's an interesting thought. Uh, that was one of my more heartbreaking experiences. Uh, I had gone away to university that fall, so I didn't get to too many home games. Although the previous three seasons, I'd probably got all the home games. Uh, I'd as soon as they won the Eastern Championship, and at that time there were six teams in the uh, NFL East that the Browns represented, and six teams in the NFL West. Uh, how Baltimore got in the West, I don't know, even though they're an East Coast team. But the, the Browns in Baltimore were set to play in the championship game, which was the equivalent of what we now call the Super Bowl. And in those days, they didn't have the championship game in a pre-appointed exotic location like New Orleans or L.A. Uh, they just alternated uh, between the East or the West champion hosting it, and that was the East's chance to host. So as soon as that happened, I mean, I used to watch all the games – on telly with my mates when we were when we were in uh, in university, but as soon as the Browns qualified for it, I wrote in for a ticket, and they sent me a card back and said, "We're sorry, you didn't get a ticket." Now this is something that you had to have been there to believe at the time, knowing the relationship between the NFL and television. That game was blacked out in Cleveland because it was being played in Cleveland, even though the stadium was sold out. Art Modell didn't allow the game to be televised in Cleveland. There were Browns fans that literally drove to Sandusky to get into the next television uh, market, which would have been the Toledo television signal to watch the game. So where I was during that game was at one of my friend's house in the basement, shooting pool, listening to the game on the radio. We couldn't even see it on TV. So wow. that was one of my bittersweet memories. We were obviously overjoyed that the Browns won the championship, shutting out the Colts 27, nothing, but 
uh, couldn't even see it on TV, listen to it on the radio. That's crazy, eh? Yeah, it really is. And a lot of people, a lot of people in Cleveland that are you know, too young to remember that find it hard to believe when I tell them that, but that's the absolute truth. Listen to it on the radio, no TV. It, uh, at the time, it was the second largest um, attendance with 79,000. Yeah, the Cleveland Stadium held about 80,000, and it was the second largest uh, stadium that was in use in the NFL at that time. And uh, if that was what the quoted figure was, 79,000 for the championship game, uh, that was uh, full. I've got, uh, I got the card here in my collection of all my ticket stubs, the card that the Browns sent me apologizing that uh, I couldn't get a ticket. Um, obviously, we were still overdrawn. I did go the next year. Uh, I was able to get a ticket the next year, and we lost to the Packers uh, in that championship game. Wow, okay, great. And, um, yeah, so uh, Frank Ryan and uh, Gary Collins, they linked up well in that game? Absolutely. Gary Collins was a receiver out of the University of Maryland, uh, number 86. And uh, I want to say he scored three of the touchdowns in that game on, on, on completions from, uh, from Frank Ryan. So, uh, yeah, Gary, Gary Collins uh, was the, the center of the passing game from Frank Ryan. And, obviously, uh, uh, Jim Brown was the, was the strength in the running game. All right, great. And then tell me a little bit more about um, uh, 1960, uh, Art Modell coming in to buy the uh, club. Yeah, Art Modell um, made his name in the television industry. And uh, a lot of people give him credit for uh, creating the linkage between the NFL uh, and television, even though he was a television alumnus by that time. He was he was uh, the owner of the Browns. Uh, and he came in in 60. But what broke my heart was in 1962, uh, in a bit of a power play, Art Modell fired Paul Brown as the Browns head coach. Now, Paul Brown was the founder of the club. Obviously, the club was named after him. Uh, he was not only the head coach and the general manager, but he also had, a, I think, a minority interest in the, in the stock of the club. So he was a part owner as well. Uh, but through some uh, financial structuring or something, a Modell with the other owners was able to squeeze Paul Brown out. They bought out his contract. He had a, I think his contract was called for 82000 a year and he had just signed an eight-year eight contract so they had to pay him that obviously when when he left and the joke was then that uh, uh, Paul Brown made as much money playing golf as Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas did because he was basically getting paid $82,000 a year to play golf but it broke his heart being out of football and obviously he later organized the Cincinnati Bengals in the American uh, Football League but uh, the interesting angle on that uh, that announcement was made on the 7th of January in 1963, which was um, like the day before my uh, 16th birthday. And um, the key thing about it was there were, there were three daily newspapers in Cleveland at that time, the Plain Dealer, the Press, and the News, and they were all on strike. They all, they're all employees were all members of the same union. They were all on strike and uh, Paul, Art Modell, a lot of people feel, used the timing of that newspaper strike uh, to basically fire Paul Brown because it would receive much less exposure. Obviously, it was going to be known about. There were other news media, radio and television, but it wasn't the same as having things in the uh, consistency of print. So somewhere in my collection, I've got a little special magazine that was put out by a group of these on-strike uh, news guys that thought that that needed to be done. They published this little magazine with Paul Brown on the cover, basically a bio of him, and they sold it through the newsstands and the news outlets. But uh, that was something that happened at the beginning of 63. And uh, the other key thing that I recall from 1963 was uh, in the fall of 63, after the season had started, um, 1960, the 
weekend of November 22nd, 1963, President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas on Friday, the 22nd of November. And basically the whole country shut down, all three of the major TV networks, and there weren't any cable TV at that time. So everybody got three networks, CBS, ABC, and NBC. All three of them were 24 hours covering the assassination. Obviously the assassination had taken place, uh, the Lyndon Johnson getting sworn in on the plane and all the stuff that was happening. And our um, Pete Rosell, who was the commissioner of the National Football League, left it up to each individual club to decide if they were going to play on Sunday because there was a full slate of games scheduled on the Sunday. Yeah. And uh, every club except the Browns canceled their home game. And oddly enough, the Browns' opponent that day was the Dallas Cowboys. Wow. And I can remember waiting for my friend to get to my house. We used to He'd walk to my house and we'd walk down to the bus together to take the bus downtown to the stadium. And I had the TV on. And, of course, the TV is constantly real-time coverage of all this post-assassination stuff. And they were going to show Lee Harvey Oswald getting escorted out of the jail uh, in Dallas to go wherever they were going to take him to indict him or uh, give him the accusation or whatever. And Jack Ruby came out and shot him. And I was standing there by myself and I, I couldn't believe it. My friend got there. I told him all about it. Anyway, we got on the bus, went down to the game. The Browns beat the Cowboys. Uh, I got the score written down here. It's a long time ago, and I'm getting to be an old guy here. 27 to 17, uh, we beat them. Uh, there were 55,000 people in the stadium, which would have been a capacity crowd in a lot of NFL stadiums. But the Cleveland Stadium held about 80,000 people. And, in fact, just the previous week, the Browns had lost to the Cardinals uh, in front of 75,000. So there were 20,000 people even though the game was on that for whatever reason didn't go to it. And there were people that were heavily affected emotionally by that assassination. So I'm sure a lot of people just gave up their, uh, you know, chance to go even if they had a ticket, but that was kind of a surreal uh, situation and something that'll always stick in my mind. And of course the fact that they were playing Dallas and Dallas is where the president got assassinated. And, you know, in the mind of a 16 year old, Oh, we'll get those Dallas guys for doing that. You know, <laughs> the players had nothing to do with it whatsoever, but in the mind of a 16 year old, it felt pretty good to beat Dallas. Wow. Um, what incredible uh, uh, stories and listen to that. And uh, I've got a question. Um, when Paul Brown uh, got fired, what was the uh, first reaction? And his successor was, is it Blanton Collier? Is that correct? Blanton Collier was his successor. And Blanton Collier had been on Paul Brown's staff. Uh, be before that, Blanton Collier had been the head coach uh, at the University of Kentucky. Uh, he was an older gentleman. Uh, and, the, the, and anyway, the, the reaction initially amongst the fans was they were outraged. I mean, literally, Paul Brown had given his name to the team. There was no way that you could think of the Cleveland Browns without thinking of Paul Brown. And for some outsider, and Art Modell had a, what I would call a pretty heavy New York accent on top of it. So that, that made him even more of an outsider. This New York carpetbagger coming in, taking over the team in the second year that he's there firing Paul Brown. And I remember characterizing Art Modell firing Paul Brown is being like the Pope excommunicating Jesus. Uh, so yeah, Cleveland fans were very uh, outraged uh, by that. Um, Blanton Collier was a loyal retainer. He obviously tried to uh, make the transition uh, and he successfully made the transition. I mean, they, they won the championship in 64 under Blanton Collier, uh, but uh, it, was, uh, it, it was a real shock, I think, to Cleveland fans who had never known any other Cleveland Browns coach besides Paul Brown. And when he won the championship in 64, did the fans then 
begin to like him, love him, or? or oh, yeah. Was... yeah I, well, he he was just sort of a lovable old guy. They weren't ever really against him. I mean, they knew it wasn't his fault that uh, that uh, that Paul Brown got uh, got dumped. And, you know, he was embraced. I, I think there, there was a continuing enmity for Modell, though. And, of course, you're well aware of what happened in more recent history when Modell yep. moved the team in the dark of night to Baltimore. And the, real, the vitriol really came out then, but a number of us old-timers said, hey, you know, We've been Modell haters ever since he did that to Paul Brown, so it wasn't anything then. But there, every once in a while, there'll be a campaign to get Modell enshrined in the Hall of Fame, and uh, the Browns fans always uh, come out against that, obviously, because of the fact that they felt they did Cleveland wrong in, uh, in two instances. And then, yeah, after 64, we seemed to finish well in the Eastern League, League at the time. Um, we would win the conference, but then we'd lose in the, champion, the NFL Championship. Yeah, I think that was that was the beginning of the sort of how can I put this? Those of us that are Clevelanders have this feeling that no matter how well something's going, something's going to go wrong just before it ends. And we've experienced this obviously in uh, in baseball and uh, uh, in basketball as well as in football. But yeah, there there were some some teams there that won their won their conference and then ended up losing in the NFL championship to the Packers. Uh, once that I can think of to the Vikings, once that I can think of. And uh, that was just uh, further Cleveland frustration. And by that time, I was I was out of Cleveland. I finished university and gone on to a job out in Illinois. So I, I sort of followed them on TV, but I wasn't as directly invested as, as, as I was when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17, going to every home game and watching every away game on telly. Yes, it looks like obviously the uh, after the World War Two up to the fifties, we won the championship every single year. Yeah. And the fifties would seem to be um, like golden. We won uh, uh, a lot in the fifties. Yeah. And then in the sixties, we've only we only won one championship, but we seem to get to a lot of the finals, and yeah. we were successful. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty much it. And I, I like I said, that was the beginning of this what I call this Cleveland mentality. That uh, no matter how well something's going, there's something going to derail you at the last minute. But again, we had some great. I mean, so many of those Browns that were on those teams are are in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, not just not just Jim Brown, but uh, guys like Mike McCormick and uh, and Gene Hickerson and Leroy Kelly, uh, and it was well as the previous ones that you mentioned from the 50s um, when they transferred over. You know, when they started in '46, they were in the All America Conference, which was kind of an outlaw league, uh, and then three clubs from that league merged with the NFL in 1950 and the the Browns won the All-America Conference every year that it existed 47 48 and 49 and people said well we don't know how good they are because who do they play so you could argue that the first Super Bowl between two different leagues was the opening game of the 1950 season because the Browns had you know won the All-America Conference every year for three years and then when they the Browns the 49ers and the Colts were the All-America Conference teams that merged into the NFL. So the Eagles were the reigning NFL champions, and the NFL scheduled the Browns to play the Eagles in Philadelphia for the opening game in 1950. We'll see what these Browns are made of because, you know, they won the championship in this Mickey Mouse League. They never had any opposition. They annihilated the Eagles in Philadelphia with something like 35 to 10, and arguably that would have been the first quote-unquote Super Bowl, you know, between – yeah. The champs of the Outlaw League and the champs of the Established League. And uh, that was, you know, 10 years or more than people, well, 17 years before the first actual Super Bowl with the with second Outlaw League, the AFL, that came along in the 60s. Excellent, excellent. And uh, to finish up, 
um, looking at your whole now, the whole Browns era for you, what is your favorite Browns moment of all time? Um, I guess my favorite Browns moment of all time was when they won that championship in 64. Uh, it's a bittersweet one. As I said, I would have loved to have been down there. Um, you know, if I'd been older than 17, I might have uh, tried to find myself getting either farther west into the TV uh, signal of, uh, of Toledo or, or Buffalo, but that's something that I uh, wasn't able to do as a 17-year-old. My parents thought it would have been ridiculous driving 100 miles west to go to a motel room and watch a football game on TV. Uh, you know, or if I'd have been older than 17, I might have gone, you know, downtown to one of the bars. There wasn't the concept of sports bars didn't exist then, but there were a couple of bars that a lot of sports fans hung out in to be able to sort of, you know, but we wouldn't have had a TV to watch it in. There was literally no television coverage, even in, you know, commercial. The concept we have today of a sports bar didn't exist, but even if it had, it wouldn't. the Browns game wouldn't have been on TV in Cleveland. Uh, question for you. Can you remember your first Browns game, which you watched on TV? Yeah, I think I can. Uh, that would have been in 57 also. That was one of the things that stoked me up to, you know, creating enough agitation in the family that my grandma finally decided to take me to a, to a Browns game because my dad wasn't interested. So yeah, it'd be in black and white. And the, the TV at that time were uh, the NFL teams all had their own TV uh, set up. There wasn't any, you know, NFL sort of overall umbrella. Uh, so the Browns had the same basic advertisers, Carling's Black Label Beer, Ohio Gasoline, same basic advertisers that the Indians had. And they televised all the away games, the home games, you had to go down and buy a ticket, which obviously you know, I was happy to do once I got old enough to do that on my own. But yeah, the first uh, uh, season I saw probably most of their away games on black and white TV. Awesome, awesome. And uh, to finish up, um, what's your view on the Browns right now, this season? Right now, in the moment, what's your views? I am extremely exhilarated by the renaissance that's taken place obviously you know we were in the darkness for those Hugh Jackson years to the point where and I'm certainly not a fair weather fan I have weathered Cleveland losses on a lot of different things but those couple of years during the Hugh Jackson era had me to the point where I literally didn't watch because I knew that we weren't going to win there was no chance of winning, even a single game I mean I, I'm I, I've put up with you know three and 13 seasons before but uh, going in and knowing you weren't going to win a game but the, the the enthusiasm that Baker Mayfield uh, has brought in uh, has really got me uh, excited, and I think it's uh, I think it's energized Cleveland and Cleveland sports, and I'm looking forward to a lot of big things from Baker Mayfield. I kind of would have liked to have seen Greg Williams get the head coaching job. Uh, I'm not sure what all the internal politics were, but I wish I wish Freddie Kitchens all the best, and uh, I feel uh, pretty good about him as well. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to a to a great future with the Cleveland Browns. Excellent. And are we going to see you in Cleveland in 2019? I'd like to get up there once. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if you're coming, be sure to let me know and I'll, I'll get up there for sure to, uh, to oh, catch up with you. We, uh, we do have a Browns backer club here in Greenville, so we're able to get together with fellow-minded Browns fans and watch them on TV, but uh, certainly would like to have an opportunity to get up there at least once during the 2019 season. Excellent. And um, how many uh, backers uh, do you get at uh, uh, your local backers uh, group? Um, 30 or 40. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when my son was living in Charleston, South Carolina, we went uh, to the Brownsbackers bar there is owned by uh, somebody from the Matthews family, uh, Clay Matthews. Uh, Clay Matthews' dad, I think, had been the, like the boxing coach at the Citadel, which is a military 
Academy in uh, Charleston, and one of his other offspring have that barn. Of course, Clay played for the Browns, and the son plays at the Packers now, and maybe he might be our next Brown inductee into the into the Hall of Fame. But uh, in Charleston, we'd get uh, 40 or 50. Uh, and, you know, most of them are people that are originally from Cleveland or Ohio, uh, and that's kind of nice to get together with people that you've got that uh, that bond with. And before the show, you called them a certain name. Uh, people from Hawaii who live in Carolina, what are they called? People from Ohio that live in Carolina, the Carolinas call them halfbacks because they retired and went to Florida and got tired of Florida and came half back. So they're in Carolina instead of back in Ohio. All right, awesome. Tom, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. And it's been absolutely awesome listening to your stories. Uh, I've learned a lot. And uh, I do look forward to meeting you in Cleveland one day. And uh, if I'm correct, fellow Englishman or your, your, your children are English? Um, my son has both passports. Yeah, I think they changed the law between 79 and 85 when my, uh, when my daughter was born. But my, yeah, my son has a British passport and an American passport. But they're both, uh, they both uh, feel quite a bit of loyalty to it, although they would claim Scottish rather than English. Okay. Maybe we can <laughs> cut that up. Okay. Um, okay, great. And Tom, how old are you, by the way? I'm 72. I turned 72 uh, the week before last. Awesome. Tom, it's been an absolute blast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Go Browns. It's been a pleasure, Paul. Hope to look forward to meeting you soon. Cheers. Cheers.